Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, May 2nd, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Noah. Hi, John. Thank you. And uh, Christine Rosen is out today. And uh, so joining us in her stead, commentary contributor, uh, heterodox thinker par excellence, uh, Professor uh, Wilfred Riley. Uh, thanks for coming on again here on the commentary podcast uh talking to you live from kentucky i believe yeah i'm actually in the middle of a move right now i'm moving um yeah i'm i'm in the capital city frankfurt is versus louisville so you can see the boxes and so on behind me as we we move into this house here ah well uh uh, congratulations Noah. yeah Noah. Noah just uh Noah just planted trees at his new house so there's a lot of there's a lot of newness and fret spring and so if it's spring, of course, uh, a young man's fancy turns to extremely neurotic, hysterical writing and thinking about the evils of having ever decided to attend the White House Correspondents' Dinner. I cannot tell you the, the, the stuff that came out after Saturday night, before Saturday night, during the event on Saturday night, and then after Saturday night, about how scared and terrified people were at the dinner at the, as they were sitting at the dinner by the it's like they could feel the covid creeping up their arms and sneaking into their nostrils jada Yuan of uh new york magazine saying this is like a horror the, the horror of sitting here i can't even begin to tell you um washington stages its own 1970s disaster movie says michael schaefer of Politico. I feel deeply ashamed, my friend said. His piece begins. The hallway was narrow. The ceiling was low. The line was meandering toward the door to the ballroom, carrying 2,600 revelers and an unknown number of viral spores into a windowless space crammed with tables and chairs. And eventually, the President of the United States, we were all per the rules, multiply vaxxed and freshly tested. We've been obliged to upload the test results. But some people were having trouble with the app, which led to bottlenecks in the line. The milling in close quarters, even with the precautions, stirred a familiar COVID-era unease. And my friends, shame. Shame? For whom? So don't go to the lousy dinner. What is wrong with you people? Will, as a, as a long-time skeptic about the tone in which people have been talking about this this uh, illness. How do you react to this? I, I think this is insane. I think this is more of the kind of up-middle-class neuroticism that we've been encouraging for the past 20 years, if not more than that, if you look back at Sally Sattel and so on. Um, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is, haven't any of these damn people been to a football game or a concert or anything like this during the at least the post-vaccination period? Because, I mean, the whole idea of public events is that you have a lot of human beings in a space. So, I mean, as you said, John, if, if you're that worried, just don't go to the, the event. But I, I think more importantly than the comment, if you're not worried, don't go, than the comment, haven't you been to other public events? There's a massive neglect of data among the people that believe this. Whenever I talk to MSNBC viewing friends, and even in downtown Cincinnati and Louisville, we have a lot of this this sort of person. 
they seem to have the perspective that if you're an ordinary taxpayer on the center right, you are misinformed and unaware of reality. And I generally find the exact reverse to be the case. I mean, without droning on, I mean, Forbes ran a piece on the best CDC data back in 2020. They said if you're healthy and under 55, your chance of dying if you get COVID is one in 5,000. The vaccination, which does work for severe injury and death, cuts that to about one-tenth of what it was. So, I mean, you, you have people treating what's now a flu-level risk without minimizing it. Many people die from influenza annually as though this were the Black Death or the boogeyman in the closet, and it's deeply weird. The, as a final line, the only thing that might be a saving grace here is that this usually is just performative. I really think it is. It's the Black Lives Matter sign in the front line. Like, none of these people didn't go to the event. They all went to nerd prom, and now they're back home complaining about it on Twitter. If they get COVID, I assume at some level, they know they're not going to die. I, I mean, I think, uh, you know, that connects to your earlier point, which is that they probably have been to football games, and they probably have been to concerts. But the, the eyes of the country were not, on, were not aware of their presence there, so they didn't have to make this sort of apologetic hysterical performance out of it. BuzzFeed's Lysandra Villa makes this point very explicitly um, <clears throat> when she writes, could spending a weekend night at a work event really be worth the possibility of getting it? What is the result going to be of images of people who are supposed to be the most trusted names in news at an event that flies in the face of common sense? Okay. If that's Let the case, you- it's not shocking that so much of the country thinks it's cool to have gone back to living their lives entirely normally. They should be modeling this behavior for the rest of America, which should be as neurotic and insane as they want to be. They're not even not even acting that. Just we have to pretend to be insane so that you can be insane, too. OK, so a tale That's of two a great New Yorks. Yeah. Tale of two New Yorks. A uh, couple weeks ago, went to a Billy Joel concert at. Madison Square Garden, you know, which is an arena, 20,000. That's where the Knicks and the Rangers play and where Billy Joel has his concerts. Uh, I've been to two concerts since sort of like at the beginning of the year. I saw Phil Collins in one of his farewell concerts. That was very sad. And I saw Billy Joel, who was uh, just uh, astonishing. And, you know, there's 20,000 people in the room, right? No masks. Masks are not required. No masking. No masks. Broadway theater. 10 blocks, you know, half a mile north. So they just announced with great fanfare that they will no longer be checking Vax cards. They've been checking Vax cards, which, by the way, makes the act of getting into a theater take 15 more minutes because you have to line up, show your Vax. You know, you have to do go through this whole process. Every individual person if there are 1,500 people going into the theater, every individual person takes about a minute where they got to get the card at, then they have to get a, their ID with the Vax card, or if you have the pass on your phone, then they have to get out the card. Okay, so they are now eliminating the Vax check, but they're keeping the masks. Masks until, until uh, at least mid-May and maybe June. What's the difference between Madison Square Garden and Broadway? Uh, Billy Joel tickets are incredibly expensive. Let's just stipulate. Like it's 200 bucks a ticket for the better seats or more. So it's not like, you know, going to a ball game and being in the bleachers. Uh, The difference is uh, that 
the audience at the Billy Joel concert is not a politicized audience. And the audience at the Broadway theater is a politicized audience. And the people who do Broadway are politicized people. So this has now basically become a version of wearing an Obama for president button. And I would also say that the, the, the audience at Madison Square Garden represents a broader <clears throat> sociological cross-section of the country. So I think it's, it's safe to assume that um, more Americans are fine going to these events uh, without masks. Um, Broadway audience, whatever else it is, it's a, it's a smaller subset. Um, Very. Every, every, everyone under a certain age uh, goes to rock or pop concerts. I only bring this up and I don't want to talk about masking constantly and all this, but I think Will's point is the most important one, which is that in fact, there has been a defiant decision that was really made a year ago, I would say once the, once the vaccines came in, but there was a defiant decision to actually start ignoring not the science, but the math. Like it was a, there was a, there was a, a determination to ignore data that said that the only real mitigating uh, thing to mitigate is the, is vaccines and that all the other mitigate we, we they all kind of rolled off right there was the washing your hands there was the and even social distancing there are still signs around that say please keep you know, six feet apart but that's ridiculous like um masking remained the data are unmistakable particularly with the rise of Omicron and all these variants, that masking is of no use. You are not protected. You are not protecting yourself or protecting anybody else by wearing a mask. Where there are mask mandates and where there are not, there is no distinction in the contagion and the number of cases that be, where people are getting Omicron, none. So what happened was they stopped caring about the science or if they ever cared about the science or the math or something like that. And, and, and this became, you know, a version of wearing uh, like very Orthodox Jews who wear certain types of fur hats or something like that. Only it is imposed only when they, when they run municipalities and States, they work very hard to make sure that everybody is wearing the fur hat. Everybody is, show, you know, everybody is, uh, you know, it's uh, like the line in Bananas where the dick, the guy who goes crazy as the dictator says, you know, uh, he suddenly, be, he, he was the populist leader, he becomes a dictator and he says, um, people will now change their underwear every 30 minutes and they'll wear it on the outside so we can check. And that's basically what's going on here. And... Um, I, we've been looking, no and I were just talking about this uh, polling data. A lot of the polling data in the last week doesn't quite line up the way you would think because the polling data is showing a catastrophe for Democrats on issues, right? 20 points down on inflation uh, against Republicans, 15 points down on crime, uh, you know, 10 points down on um, immigration, uh, a minority uh, one of these polls had republicans uh, getting more of the hispanic vote than democrats for the first time i think in history all of that and yet the top line numbers don't don't jive right it's like 
40 it's like even generic ballot where you're going to vote for democrat or republican it's around 45 45 like even this doesn't add up but the one thing that's really missing is covid and what i mean by that is they 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 are polling issues how do you feel about education how do you feel about climate change how do you feel about racial disparities and who's best at dealing with you know um uh support for you know gay rights and stuff like that and these bigger issues crime inflation But they're not polling on COVID. And I don't know even how you would ask the question about COVID. Oh, they are. But <clears throat> they're polling, well, as, they're issue, polling as, about, as issue sets. Well, well like, as yeah. So Biden, the one of the two areas in which Biden hasn't cratered completely is people saying that he's handled COVID okay. But I don't. And Ukraine. He's, do, he's doing quite well in right, Ukraine. Right. But when they but poll bringing, the issue of, of all these issues that are your top priority, yeah. be it the top priority or ranked choice, like top three priorities, COVID ranks at or near the bottom of the barrel and has since March. Right. But my point is that I still think that when all is said and done, this entire election will be about COVID. I mean, all of this stuff is ancillary is ancillary things or breakouts or things that happened during the pandemic. The thing that's interesting about this, I mean, from a political science perspective, but also just a common sense perspective is, again, just getting back to this sort of the total neglect of the data on the ground. So, I mean, for me, kind of the moral change point in the COVID-19 pandemic and in the red states, even in big cities, there was never a great deal of panic about COVID. Almost everyone was an essential worker. People tried to protect seniors, but basically went on living their life. And then going back to Chicago and so on, it's like a weird trip to another planet to some extent. Watching people with the two and three masks on in the cities downtown, bicycling alone. And I'm sure it's even worse for you guys in New York, but seeing sort of the Mag Mile deserted with seagulls flying around and this sort of thing but i mean whatever the approach was to covid 19 prior to vaccination i mean the actual data on the vaccines as re serious injury and death isn't disputed it's a reduction of a 79 to 90 percent so the whole thing with covid 19 was that it was four or five times as dangerous as flu uh, you can now cut that risk by a factor of five or a factor of 10. So to some extent, there's not a whole lot to see here. One of the things that I actually have a problem with the right on is sort of the subtle and often not so subtle anti-vax campaigns we've been seeing. Because if you look at the predictors of what's going to cause someone, to, an adult human being to still die from COVID-19, there are only three. One is age. The average victim has been 80 throughout the entire pandemic. One is obesity and something like a 0.78 correlation. And again, that's something that should have been discussed through all this. But the third is simply not being vaccinated. Uh, something like 95% of the people we've seen die since vaccines arrived on the scene were unvaccinated. So the entire idea that someone's doing well or doing badly on COVID has become somewhat meaningless. I mean, this is now a risk that adults can choose to incur or not incur. And in terms of the politicization of the vaccination process by both the Dems and the Republicans, I mean, I, I don't understand how someone could say that Biden's done a particularly good job on COVID. Uh, what we've seen throughout the pandemic, actually, is that the Democratic governors outside of the Deep South have done a slightly worse job than the Republican governors. I mean, Cuomo in New York was number one in deaths for most of the pandemic, not that this is a contest, while, like, while writing books with titles like leadership, what I learned from the disease epidemic. 
But I mean, it's the same thing with Joe Biden. I mean, more people died bluntly from COVID, about 450,000 under Uncle Joe than under Donald Trump. So I, I don't understand where those ratings come from. But again, as Noah pointed out, COVID is, I think there's 17 issues they poll on, COVID's 15th or something like that. So the generic ballots I've seen more recently are actually, you know, R plus three, R plus six. Um, the question is, will, I guess what I'm getting at here is, will there be a purely political continuation of the pandemic unnecessarily? Probably. But the morally relevant portion of the pandemic to a large extent is over. You can get a vaccine that makes it 90% less likely you'll die from COVID. So all of this histrionic behavior, all these people walking around in masks and so on, it has nothing at all to do with reality to a degree that's kind right. of remarkable. So that's where we need to dig into this a little bit. I know we're, we're you know, this is like we're, we're in that, you know, no exit situation of having the same conversation over and over again. But just to dig into what happened this weekend with this 2,600 people at the White House Correspondents' Dinner and this phrase that, that, that Michael Schaefer used, which is, my friend was sh felt ashamed shame he was ashamed that this elite group was doing what it was doing here um why why is this happening still what is the what is the driver and the question is is there is there an ideological driver in this sense which is that um the ideological driver would be the liberal and democratic view of life has now become wildly pessimistic and mildly apocalyptic. We're all going to die from climate change. We're all going to die in, if you live in New York City. If cars don't drive 20 miles an hour, everyone's going to get killed in a car accident. You're going to get killed here. You're going to get killed there. You might all die We're if Elon Musk takes over Twitter. Right. And wow. so and so going with the bleak, dark view of how everyday life should be lived is, in fact, an expression of a deep ideological uh, uh, strain uh, in the that has been building and building and building and makes the word progressive almost an oxymoron, right? Since progressivism is supposed to imagine that we're building toward a ever more glorious future. And they basically now have given up on that and think that, you know, all we're, all we're, all we can do now is kind of stave off worse disaster. That would be the ideological component. And obviously that's not going to be defeated by good or bad news or, you know, by good news on COVID numbers, because it's too deeply ingrained. Yeah, that and, and also the other, and the other is that there the other is that there is some kind of weird social desirability thing about right. acting this way that they can't get out of. It's like they're in a it's like they're caught in a neurotic in a neurotic loop. And we've learned off over the last 20 years, as Will said, it's almost like professing your neurosis and talking about how scared you are about things, which is something that a adult person isn't really supposed to do kind of keep it to your everybody's got fears you know people who are afraid of spiders which is like one of them which is one of the great human you know common human fears don't walk, walk around going we need a campaign to eliminate spiders 
I'm afraid. I'm so afraid. I saw a spider yesterday. Oh my God. You know, it's not funny. Right. But I mean, fear of spiders is like on a list of what people fear. It's like the top five on the planet earth. But this is more pathological because people who are afraid of spiders for the most part have an understanding that their fear is irrational. Uh, people who are petrified of COVID are certain that their fear is rational. But I, but, I mean, well, they're they're right. they're they're that about spiders. So we'll continue. Yeah. So just very, very quickly. I think there, there are two components there. One, obviously among the people that initiate a lot of this sort of thought leaders, quote unquote, there is a desirability goal. And that's why you classic social desirability. And that's why you see like the mask on mask off phenomenon where people will be posing in all their political pictures with one or two face masks on, and then will be photographed later that night at a nightclub with Magic Johnson. I think that's, that's obviously there. But a second level is that the people who consume a lot of the content produced by influencers genuinely believe it. So I, I, to me, I think that's the duality. There are many people virtue signaling. Then there are many other well-intentioned people who look around at the constant virtue signals and believe them. And if you did that, if you truly believed what MSNBC or CNN, or for that matter, Fox said every night, you'd be absolutely terrified to go outside. Uh, okay, you know, maybe we should. Uh, I, 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 I think I just, it spins there, off into a variety yeah. of other issues that you can plumb without having to dwell in the depths of the pandemic. <clears throat> I mean, elementary political competence would lead this, would allow the White House to declare victory over this thing. Multiple populist states are now treating it as endemic, including mine, including California. And that they could say, well, that's due to our very competent vaccine strategy. They're not allowed to say that because to say that would be to sacrifice what has become a niche lifestyle brand that the Democratic Party is peddling. What else explains this attack on mentholated cigarettes, which goes after uh, a, a hobby that is enjoyed by a, a very important democratic constituency. What else explains the forgiveness of student loans, save that it's a, it's, a, it's a constituency that needs to have their lifestyle preserved and maintained. In my state, in New Jersey, they got rid of bags, not just plastic bags, paper bags, all bags they got rid of. And I don't think anybody actually thought this was going to happen because it's so profoundly stupid. But now that it's happened, they're walking around and talking to people who go to church services, for example, and provide styrofoam meals in plastic bags to, to their congregants. And all of a sudden, they said, wait a minute, this is going to be really difficult for us to, to abide by. We're going to get fined? Nobody asked these questions because you weren't supposed to think very long and hard about it. It was a lifestyle choice that they were imposing on you. And you're supposed to mimic because it's, it's moral. All these are couched in moral panics. So there can't be much of an opposition to it because to oppose this behavior is to flirt with reckless immorality, especially. Can, can I give you regime. mine? Sure. Can I give you mine? So, you know, they're, they're, they're basically do, it's using national means that I don't entirely understand. Uh, by the end of 2023, I believe incandescent light bulbs will no longer be manufactured in the United States. I, I don't going like, on my list. I don't like LED light bulbs. I don't like the light they give off. I mean, I understand they last longer. Although, actually, funnily enough, if you if your if your power source, if you live in like an old building as I do, and your and your your electric is a little fritzy, 
um, the bulbs do weird things. They 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 bounce and flash, and they do. It's 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 not that pleasant. But in any case, I I you know basically I'm facing these two choices, which is if I want incandescent light bulbs, I'm going to have to start stockpiling them, and you know I don't even know where I'm going to put them. I, I got because, another one for you. Yeah. We talked about it the other day. Fifteen percent ethanol gas. You have a small engine. You have a lawn, a leaf blower, uh, a weed yeah. whacker, a push mower. Your machine will die this summer because unless so, you go to a special place with special mm-hmm. gas that you use in small engines, you're screwed. Okay, so let let let's finish up with this, which is you have a little bit here, right? You got incandescent light bulbs. They're banning. They're screwing around with your small appliances that use that need gas, and they're doing the fifteen percent ethanol. There's a li- the bag. There are little bags here. Every time people come up and say, oh, the nanny state is doing X, Y, and Z, the answer is usually, now hey, you're a big baby. So, so you got to bring a bag into a store. Big deal. Or you have to buy a $2 bag from Whole Foods. Big deal. Oh, is that so hard for you, little baby? Okay. But you take that and you multiply it by 15 different little baby things. What? Incandescent light, you know, uh, you know, Look, it's maybe a little inconvenient for you. It's really good for the environment. And you know what? It's going to be cheaper for you in the long run because you don't have to buy as many bulbs. But if your entire life is circumscribed by this this nannyism, and it really is starting to bite in a way that it hasn't quite bitten before, Republicans aren't going to get blamed for nannyism. Like, that's just... Democrats may or may not get blamed for it, but one thing is for certain, Republicans are not going to get blamed for we're taking your bags away. No one's going to say, my God, the only thing Republicans want to take away is abortions. That's really about it. They don't want to take anything else away. As far as I can tell, I don't know what it is they want to take away. They do want to stop abortions, but they don't want to stop guns. They don't want to. All Democrats are the, I want to take things away from you to make everything better. And as long as they were stymied to some degree, that was a perfectly fine. Now they're sort of getting their way all over the place. And the pe- people aren't going to like it. And, the, and the, the, the incremental number of inconveniences that is being imposed from above. Because when you say, why well, can't, I can't find a 60 watt bulb. It's like, oh, you know, the government banned them. I need a bag. I, not government won't let me sell you a bag. You know, this in combination with the erosion of trust in institutions, a lot of um, liberal led institutions also means that the cover stories for these uh, these inconveniences and restrictions on your life, um, fewer and fewer Americans are believing these cover stories, especially because of the 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 way the public health apparatus has vacillated back and forth and yeah. w- what they've shown the face of uh, expertise to really be. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to talk to you guys about uh, two things. I'm going to talk to you about our friend David Bonson and his book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, in which this kind of coercive government behavior is covered as, as is all sorts of other government behaviors that involve interfering with the economy that that end up having a, a, a net negative effect on human flourishing, human freedom, and ordered liberty. This is 
a brilliant you know uh, uh, series of explanations of elemental economic ideas uh, supported by quotes one a day and descriptions of uh, very all most economic theories that we that we have uh, it's just a sensational uh, primer it's a great guide for people who are having second thoughts about the things they believe and it would be great for teenagers uh, who want to consult so they find out how the world works that's David Bonson B-A-H-N-S-E-N in his book there's no free lunch 250 economic, economic truths you can get it at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, or wherever you get fine books. And then, of course, you should sit down, plop yourself down in your X chair to read David's book, because from the moment you sit in your X chair, your body's going to say, ah, this is what a real office chair is supposed to feel like. You never actually look forward to sitting in your office chair, right? You will if you get an X chair, because it can give you a massage while you're working. It can heat you up or cool you down uh, to, to compete with whatever's going on in the uh, overall atmosphere of your office. That's that LMAX massage and temperature regulation exclusively designed and made for X chair. And once you've felt the customized support of X chairs, patented dynamic variable lumbar DVL, you'll never be happy in any other chair. Again, high performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort. These are all the reasons you'd love your X chair. So take my advice, try it for yourself, risk-free for 30 days Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-X-CHAIR. For $100 off your order, X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month, xchaircommentary.com. Wilfred Riley, you have a magnificent piece in the June, excuse me, the May issue of commentary uh, that we have brought you on to discuss. The piece is called The New Definition of Racism. And uh, it begins with a very plain sentence. Words have to mean things. And your argument is that the new effort to redefine racism removes any meaning from the word racism and applies uh, and, 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 and it, it is leading to a net confusion and misunderstanding of what actually racism is and what it means that there are disparities between racial groups. Please, yeah. please, please, uh, please uh, expostulate on this. So thank you for that uh, elegant intro. Um, I'll, I, I'll try to live up to the magnificent piece <laughs> billing and all, all of that. But uh, yeah, in this piece, I make a fairly simple argument against what at one point I call Kendiism. Um, and th there are really two components. One is broad, one is specific. The first component of the argument is simply me noting and criticizing the semantic redefinition we see so much of in the academy and in politics, especially on the left. So, I mean, someone, want, I think it was PJ O'Rourke, who half seriously said that leftists tend to win arguments because all the English professors are on their side. So if the facts simply don't support, for example, the contention that most Americans are racist, you redefine racism. And I actually give several examples of this. I mean, the Title IX uh, sex assault controversy on college campuses without minimizing that very serious story mostly boils down to the question of whether essentially consensual sex that involves drugs or alcohol that's later regretted is quote unquote rape. That obviously, ungentlemanly, perhaps not a good thing, but that is not what that term is conventionally meant. And I, I go through a few more examples of this sort of thing. 
And then I get to the core point, which is right now, uh, a number of prominent thinkers, Ibram Kendi, Robin D'Angelo, so on down the line, are arguing essentially that racism is a term that should be thought of entirely systemically. So a racist system is any system that produces disparate outcomes across group lines. And I, I think most listeners to a podcast like this would, would know this already, but it's worth recapping that. I mean, when an activist, a quote unquote woke person says that is racist, they don't mean it's operated by bigots. They don't mean that the, the modus operandi behind a system like standardized testing is animus of any kind. All they mean is that there's a disparate rate of group outcomes. If whites finished ahead of blacks who finished ahead of Native Americans, that would be a racist system. And most of the piece focuses on critiques of this. I mean, the broadest is simply that it's meaningless. I mean, this definition of racism would theoretically describe a pro-black welfare policy put in place by a black democratic mayor or city council president as racist if it down the road had some negative impact on black people. But I mean, there's also a fair amount of factual content in the piece. I, the, the core claim of Kendiism, kind of getting to the point, that the, the two possible explanations for a gap between groups are one, racism and some kind of hidden, subtle way within a system, which is why he's so comfortable calling any system that produces disparities racist, that's one. Or two, deep-seated, probably genetic inferiority uh, is, you don't want to use a phrase like idiotic, but just very obviously facially wrong. Um, large groups differ in terms of dozens of different variables, median age, where they choose to live, study time, so on down the line. And adjusting for any of that stuff in professional social science closes the gaps that we're looking at to the point where you can get the actual residual for racism. Um, and I, I close the piece by attempting to define racism, which in large part just means returning to the definition we've already had for 100 plus years. I mean, you know, one one important point here, I think, is uh, that you you say there are only two. You say that uh, Kendi and others basically say there there it's a, it's a complete binary. Either either it is the fact that groups essentially that you know groups are dumber than other groups, and therefore they don't perform as well and they don't do as well. Either that explains it or a systemic, a, a system holding them down, holding them back. And there's nothing, and there's nothing in between. And of course, you say that one of the things that social science teaches is that there are about 500,000 things between. Yeah, it, it's an interesting dichotomy. I mean, so essentially to, to say this a bit better and more quickly than I did the last time. I mean, what Kendi argues is that there are these two possibilities, you know, deep-seated inferiority or racism within systems. He says that the causal variable that explains gaps has to be racism within systems. He's not willing to consider the first option. So every time we see a performance gap, we can conclude that we are seeing racism. And if you don't believe that, you're a racist. That's basically the Kendi argument. And when you actually start unpacking that, that that's again, just, just obviously false. Large numbers of things that no one would consider to be evidence of inferiority. And Kendi's kind of vague on whether he would 
consider allegations of cultural differences to be allegations of inferiority, in my opinion. But dozens of things that no one would even put in that category explain performance. I mean, Hispanic Americans do fairly poorly on standardized written reading tests. One reason for this is that the level of English fluency is much lower in the Hispanic community, which includes a lot of immigrants. So to say that the only explanation, and we've already gone through the one too, but to say that the only explanations are A or B completely ignores C, which is fluency in another beautiful world language. And there, there are dozens of things of this kind. Blacks and Southern whites are more likely to believe accurately or not, uh, you do notice a lot of members of both groups and say the National Football League, that they might have a future in athletics, music, some other sort of competition outside the academic arena. And so both of those groups tend to study less. Um, that obviously is reflected in test scores as well. You can't really refer to that as an example of cultural inferiority, although I think we need to change it in the black community, or cultural superiority. It's a, it's a different set of priorities among two groups that are not these days wildly unsuccessful. So just ignoring all of this and saying, nope, it's hidden racism that the whites smuggled in somehow, or it's this, this terrible you know, alt-rightish option, uh, I'm, I'm amazed that this has gone on unchallenged for as long as it has. And I, I think one bit of evidence there when you guys talk about virtue signaling is that almost all the challengers, myself, Coleman Hughes, you know, Glenn Lowry, happen to be people of color in some sense. So I, I think a lot of white debaters or intellectuals just don't want to enter this arena and say, Kendi just doesn't strike me as all that academically impressive. Because then the question becomes, are you a bigot? Who are you to say such things? You know, pale face. So it's, it's an interesting zone, but the argument itself doesn't strike me as true. So uh, that, then that's, that's the point of the piece, the problems with this. One obvious point, by the way, is that white Americans do not, Anglo white Americans, let's say, are not the highest performing group in the United States by a long shot. So if you are trying to argue that all performance gaps indicate prejudice, I mean, the old line is that the USA would have to be an Asian and Jewish supremacist society. And no one ever takes the, the argument to this logical extreme, but there's no argument against I'll it. tell you who do racists. Boom. But no, I mean, <laughs> people like, who it, really don't like Jews and don't like Asian Americans think but by the, the way, society that's is geared the ultimate, toward them. That's, yeah, no, the I, ultimate, I guess that's, yeah. that's a good point. I mean, obviously, there are, I'm, there are a lot of people that don't yeah. like Jews. Yes, uh, but no, I don't, I've never heard anyone coherently argue that the USA is a Korean supremacist country. What you actually see in the USA is that about 11% of the population is made up of hyper high performing minority groups. I'm just for now, I'm gonna put Jews in this category, but Indian Americans, many of them are black, Nigerians, Caribbeans, then you have whites and then you have other lower performing minority groups and things like study culture perfectly predict this pattern, racism doesn't. Look, so, I mean, one of, one of the important points here that I, you don't really go into, but the word racism, as Noah sort of indicates, was about animus. It's about animus. You're racist because you have unreasonable hostility toward an entire group. Based this may be very pedantic, but isn't there an element of superiority in that? It's not the synony synonymous with bigotry, right? There's an, there's an what, racism? assumed superiority. Yeah, that, that's in correct. Uh, traditionally defined, a racist is someone who believes in the genetic inferiority of one or more of the racial or ethnic, if we're discussing Jews, Arab Americans, and so on, 
uh, groups to one or more of the others. And there's generally an element of dislike. So to be a classical racist, you have to believe in the superiority of group X, generally your own, and you have to dislike group Y. Right. But the dislike is an important factor. And nobody would have looked at, you know, Lester Maddox or somebody like that and said, you know, what he's really convinced about is that his group is uh, is really superior. He, you know, just hated black people. A lot of people hate anti-Semitism is about hating Jews. And then sometimes then people layer this pseudo scientific set of causes in order to say, no, 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 I'm not. Honestly, I'm really not. I'm not a. I've, I've, I, there's science behind my view, you know, starts, started with phrenology, moved on to, you know, moved on to a, a, a misunderstanding of IQ scores and stuff like that. It's like, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not hostile. There's no hostility. I'm just describing the world as it really is. But in fact, what we, what we understood as racism when I was a kid was, you know, the classic image of a racist would have been a tobacco chewing Southern sheriff with a bolo tie who says, you know, who calls, uh, you know, Sidney Poitier boy and slaps him and then Sidney Poitier slaps him back. I mean, that's that's what that's what racism used to now. Racism is this idea that it's almost uncon- it's almost an unconscious structure, superstructure in so, which we all live to that point. After the the piece was published, there was this story that provides excellent example of very important real world consequence of of this Kendiism. Um, and Will, I saw you respond to it on Twitter. That was the AP story about this algorithm that child welfare agencies use, currently use, to flag households where child neglect may be going on. So they know potentially if they have to, if, if they should intervene or, or check it out. The, al- the algorithm is producing um, a, uh, a disproportionate number. It's flagging a disproportionate number of black households. And this is now a problem. And they're talking about rejiggering the algorithm to get the racism out of the system. So what you're looking at here potentially is they're figuring out a way to ignore some potential signs of child neglect so that the numbers don't look, quote, systemically racist. Yeah, I I don't want to do too much of the talking, but I mean, that's correct. And that's a terrible story, Abe. I mean, like, I I was baffled when I, I saw this, but yes, There's an algorithm that professional social workers use, which looks at things like alcohol consumption in the household, presence of a stepfather, past incidents of abuse, to predict which children are at risk of being abused. You're not accusing anybody, but you you are going to keep an eye on those households. If necessary, you're going to move a child out, a child client out of there. And the problem, and by the way, the figures, as usual, the figures for everyone were terrible but there was a white minority gap. So like 20.8% of white kids, at least kids that had ever interacted with the system were at risk of abuse. So were, you might correct me, but 35% of black kids. The gap itself was listed as evidence of racism. So they're changing the algorithm as was just said. The problem is that these kids are obviously at risk of abuse. 
if you're in a household with an alcoholic stepfather and four other kids and the police have been called before, chances of of beating incident or something are very high. So this again gets back to the idea of what's the problem with the algorithm? Well, nothing. It just predicts black people are more likely to commit crimes. The problem with this, and people at least in intellectual conversations need to say this bluntly, is that right now, black people are more likely to commit crimes. We're a younger, more urban, more working class, more Southern, just et cetera, et cetera, population. But the refusal to acknowledge that leads to these crazy claims about like the racism of computer technology. And we've seen this even more intensively with AI recently because of the gender issue. The claim there is that AI in a sexist fashion doesn't recognize trans women as women. So, I mean, we're starting to see this crap you know, if you don't like woke capital or woke law, wait until you get to woke medicine or woke IT to quote a guy named Dave Azarad. I mean, this, this is going to be problematic. Honestly, this the problem with the over hyperreactive child protective services long predates any sort of algorithmic injustice. Uh, there was a 2016 University of Pennsylvania law school study that found approximately 25,000 children are removed from their homes every year and spend less than 30 days in foster care meaning they should have never been removed from their homes in the first place. 25,000 on an annual basis. And it's a result of an emerging cultural consensus that believes the state should take a much more aggressive role in parenting children as, as progressive parenting techniques subside. They've outsourced this to the state. Algorithm or algorithm or no algorithm. And there is some legitimacy to the notion that the inputs that you put into a system like that you're all, are only as good as their inputs. And if the inputs are tainted by societal expectations, racist expectations, the algorithm will suffer as a result. I'm not technologically fluent enough to know the virtues of that argument, but it certainly isn't applicable here for a problem that well predates any sort of algorithm. Well, no, I mean, I think actually something like that algorithm is an effort to correct for the problem that you're talking about theoretically, which is to say, um, you see something is going on in a household and the question is, do you pay the visit or do you not pay the visit? Is, are there six risk factors or, you know, and at any given point, if there are six risk factors, then somebody should be paying a visit to make sure that a, a catastrophe isn't going to happen. Yeah, um, the algorithm is, is blind to race. I mean, the, I don't think anything should be done by algorithm, but if you're actually sort of saying what you need to do is, you know, say, okay, there are seven, here's the description of the household, this, 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 and this. And each of these factors that you check off as a, as a thing that's there has a certain risk factor for abuse. And so if you have a multiple of them, then you have a multiple risk factor for abuse. The effort there is to drain the social worker in a weird way is to, is to remove agency from the individual social worker who may, who may be too fast on the trigger or the cop who may be too fast on the trigger, right? To say there needs to be some independent verification of a problem and not just what your, what your eyeball says, because while that can be important, if you're a really good social worker, if you're a lousy one, you know, and you're afraid that someone's going to blame you for not taking the kid out, you know, for your own sake, you take the kid out because that's the safer option for you. No one's going to blame you for being too fast on the, you know, for being too fast to, to, to intervene. But if there a catastrophe happens, you will instantly be ruined for the rest of your life. So the incentives are, the incentives are bad, but, but the whole notion that you would then game the out, al- I mean, effectively what you're saying is we need to game the algorithm so that the numbers come in better. 
I mean, it's a little like Trump, you know, in like March or April of 2020 saying, I don't let's we don't want to do any testing. We don't want to do any testing because we if we know the numbers are going to be bad and that's going to be bad for me. So let's not as though the as though that was the problem. The problem was, you know, if you could just not show the numbers, then everything everything should be fine. Well, listen, um, I really want again, want to commend everyone. Go to commentary.org and read Wilfred Riley's piece, The New Definition of Racism. It's illuminating, it's original, it's important, and, and, uh, and, and we're very proud to have published it, and we're thrilled to have had you on yet again. Uh, we love one of our favorite, one of, a fan favorite, as they say. You're a fan favorite. Uh, and so uh, it's great to have you, and Christine will be back tomorrow. So for Noah and Abe, I'm John Budhortz. Keep the candle burning.